thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. See you next time, and for everyone else, we'll see you back here in 10 days for a return to the aircraft series with a jet that began as a carrier-based strategic nuclear bomber, but served mainly as a tactical reconnaissance bird. That's right. This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's all about the North American A-5 Vigilante with a retired Navy pilot who flew over 100 reconnaissance missions over North Vietnam. And we're trying something new this week. Joining us as co-host is someone with no military aviation experience whatsoever. He's not a former guest on the show. He's one of you, a podcast listener. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and this is episode 63. We'll get to our interview on the Vigilante with retired U.S. Navy Captain Bob Jellison in just a bit. But first, let's meet our guest co-host. Now, as you regular listeners know, on recent episodes, we have brought back a previous guest to help us better understand the topic of the day. And when I put this by our Patreon supporters, they really liked the idea. And then one of the supporters had a novel idea. He suggested we bring on a guest co-host who is not a military aviator, but rather a listener who can represent the audience. That seemed like an interesting idea, so let me introduce you to Fighter Pilot Podcast listener and Patreon supporter Andrew King from the Pacific Northwest. How's it going, Andy? Hey, Jello. How's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to have you here. And uh, I think this should be a lot of fun. You're representing about 20,000 listeners or so, so no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) But for starters, why don't you tell us who you are and how you came to enjoy military aviation? Well, I'm Andy, Andy King. Hi. (laughs) Well, right now I live in Seattle and I manage, I'm one of the managers at a big music venue in Seattle called Numos. That takes up a lot of my time. And I'm also a professional drummer. I mean, I play in a bunch of bands, which you'll hear some of one of the band's music at the end of the podcast, I believe. That's right. We'll play it as the outro song. Yep. That band is called Reader. And uh, I play for Jacob James in a band called Trash Fire. And yeah, that keeps me busy. But as far as aviation goes, I've always loved aviation and aircraft mainly the military side. And I have a long line of naval aviators in my family. My great uncle was a PBY Catalina pilot in World War II. And awesome. my uncle was mainly a helicopter guy, flew Sea Kings and Seahawks, H3s and H60s, and instructed fixed wing and rotary wing. Okay, So I spent a lot of time as a kid like at Navy bases, and it was just the coolest thing to me, like <laughs> these high-performance jets. And these helicopters like landing on ships. Yeah. And then I, you know, obviously I, you fan out and I started getting into, I love everything military aviation. There's nothing cooler to me than a jet that can go faster than the speed of sound, pull like 
seven to nine G's. <laughs> and the most amazing thing about that to me is the people is the pilots that fly these planes. Ah, and good. it's like, it's incredible that someone can keep their wits about them while under these extreme circumstances, <laughs> um, you know? All right. So I'm just really enamored by it. And I think aircraft and airplanes are just a beautiful thing. Did you ever look into doing it yourself? Yeah, actually I have. <laughs> I have like 48 hours in little single engine planes, mainly. No, I mean like military aviation. Oh, military. Yeah, I did. Actually, I tried to join the warrant officer program in the army. My eyesight got me. Ah. I wanted to fly uh, Chinooks. I had this dream of flying Chinooks and I went in and uh, my eyesight got me, but I ended up enlisting anyway. And I ended up doing like five years in active duty and one year in the national guard. And I was in the infantry, got to do a lot of really cool things there and no regrets. Really happy I did it. Really proud of oh, good. what I did. I met well, I can't tell you how many people I hear from who say, oh, I love the show. I wanted to fly, but I didn't have the eyes or didn't have color vision or something along those lines. So for sure, you are our uh, target audience. So, <laughs> but let me ask you this. I mean, you know, the podcast is available for free, but you choose to support us on Patreon at the Mission Commander tier. Thank you very much. Why pay for something you can get for free? Well, I think I felt like it was something that I could actually like give to, you know, if I was able to help out in any way, I felt like that that was a good way to do it. And then here I am on the show, which is crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like we've talked about before, like I wasn't able to actually fly in the military, but I also have this crazy knowledge about military aviation and an understanding of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And for someone like me, this is a great way to share the knowledge I have to people that love this subject as much as I do. Yeah, we greatly appreciate it. And, you know, Patreon is the place to help support us, but also gain access to all those exclusive benefits. It's pretty cool because at the level you are, of course, you know, you get the early episodes. We got some bonus content, unedited interviews, all kinds of things. And then you and I even, I think last month, spent 30 minutes on the phone talking, and that's how the idea came up for doing this. So it's a good place to, like I said, help out and get a little bit more than what you just get for free uh, on your favorite app player. So, all right, Andy, well, what do you say we cover a few announcements and then I'll have you pose a few listener questions to me. Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. Awesome. Well, let's see. Last week's F-16 Viper demo team episode was a big hit, and many listeners asked if we could have more from our guest co-host of that episode, T-Day. So we'll see if we can get him to make a return in the future. What did you think of T-Day there, Andy? I thought T-Day was really great. Uh, he really had a good way of explaining things so uh, the listeners could understand them. I could really follow what he was saying really well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll see if we can't get him back. That'd be great. All right, let's see what else. Uh, last Friday evening, November 15th, 2019, for those of you who are listening later, I had the honor of returning to my alma mater and speaking to the UCLA Navy ROTC Battalion at their annual birthday ball gala. And that was a lot of fun celebrating the recent Navy and Marine Corps' 244th birthdays. And it was also great to get dressed up again. I was surprised I still fit my old uniform. And the midshipmen seemed to appreciate my remarks. So I distilled them into amusing we posted on our website earlier this week. And if you want to see what I had to say to those young folks getting ready to serve, you can head on over and check that out. 
Also, with the holidays coming up, which is a time people do a bit of shopping, we want to remind everyone of the many offerings on the shop page of the Fighter Pilot Podcast website. There you can find links to several great books, as well as our Cafe Press and Society6 storefronts featuring military aviation-themed apparel and home decor. Andy, I know you're looking for that Apache helicopter throw pillow for your couch. Yes. That's where you can find it. (laughs) Yep. Still got those from last year. And for those of you who subscribe to our newsletter, we will be emailing a list of various items and aviation-themed gear the team here at BVR Productions finds useful. And so you might want to forward that list to someone shopping for you this holiday season so you don't just get like another tie or something you don't really want. And finally, we've been leading up to it for a while now. Yeah, go ahead, Andy. It's funny you brought up your old uniform. I was going to ask you if you put your old uniform on for that. I did, yeah. If you go to the museum, you can see pictures of it. You did fit in it, huh? It was tight, let's just say. You know, now I sit in an airplane for hours at a time and don't really move around much. So it's a work in progress with me. But yeah, I did fit and I didn't pass out. So that's a win. I think my old uniform is actually bigger on me than it used to be. I think I I I lost some muscle mass along the way. I'm not as fit as I used to be. Well, drummers burn a lot of calories too. They do. All right. Fair enough. All right, let's see. Last announcement. Uh, Let's see. We've been leading up to it for a while now. And because nothing says the holidays like a big old bomber, December will finally be Bomber Month. Every Monday from the 2nd to the 23rd, we will feature a different aircraft from the World War II era B-17 Flying Fortress to the cutting edge B-2 Spirit. The shows will have a slightly different format, including a new song from our musician Jaime Lopez and a slightly different format for the actual content of the show. And it should be a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to Bomber Month. That's going to be great. I can't wait. Yeah. All right. Well, I understand you have a few listener questions there, Andy. So why don't you put them to me? And if my answer assumes too much understanding on the part of the listener, then you can keep me honest. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Here's the first question. It's by Mike Reed from Orange County. He says, I've noticed some VFA squadrons, 2586 and 136, are assigned to East Coast Air Wings, but are based at Naval Air Station Lemoore. Is it just a matter of space availability at Naval Air Station Oceana or other air stations on the East Coast or something else? Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. So really what you have here is you have basing and tasking. Basing will be based on where a squadron already is, and that sounds foolish, but the point simply being that it's fairly expensive to move a squadron because you have to move all the families and everything else. And so if there's space available and the squadron's already there, then you want to leave them there even if they are assigned to an air wing on the opposite coast because they can get back and forth across the country and take care of their tasking without having to move the whole family and there might not be room at the other base. The Prowlers did this forever. They were all based up at Whidbey, and I believe the Growlers are doing that now. There were F-14 squadrons back in the old days that would leave Miramar and go to the East Coast and vice versa. So it's just a function of basing and tasking, and the tasking changes more often than the basing because air wings might stand down. There could be squadrons that are transitioning, so another squadron needs to fill in. There's always something happening, and so they will play a little shell game with squadrons, and it's not uncommon to be assigned to an air wing on the opposite coast. But I can see from the outside where it doesn't make a lot of sense. You might think, why not just use East Coast squadrons on the East Coast air wings and vice versa? But it's just a question of sometimes they're not always available, particularly lately when squadrons had been transitioning from the Hornet to the Super Hornet, and now with transitionings happening to the Joint Strike Fighter. What do you think of that, Andy? Does that make sense? That makes sense to me. 
It's kind of a complicated issue, I feel like, with all the new, like, especially the F-35 coming in, don't they have to build up a lot of new, like, maintenance facilities and stuff at the bases as well? Oh, yeah. You have all the higher classification for the basic systems yep. and everything on the F-35. You know, the air wings aren't all composed the same. In other words, no. my friend Grand, who's been on the show a couple of times, he's going to an air wing that will not have the F-35 yet, but other air wings will. And so, yep. yeah, you got to move things around. And there's a lot of facility requirements that go along with the F-35 as well. Good point. And also those airplanes can get to where they need to go. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's true. They can get just about anywhere and, and things are pretty busy right now, too. So everything's always moving. Yep. You ready for the next question? Hit me. All right. This is from James Menzies, a former U.S. Coast Guard quartermaster. Oh, all right. And his question is, Jello, I know you like the P-51 and the P-38, but seeing how you're ex-Navy, which would you prefer to fly? The F-4U Corsair or the F-6F Hellcat and why? This is a great question. It is a great question, and he's really holding me to task as my fellow Navy peers ought to be because, right. yeah, my two previous answers uh, way back on an early episode were the Mustang and the Lightning, and I do love those airplanes. My brothers and I were kids uh, building models. That's what we built. And to answer the quartermaster's question, I would say the F4U Corsair for the same reason. When we were kids, we just loved the iconic shape of the Corsair. <laughs> I just know more about that aircraft than I do the Hellcat. Plus, you remember that show? Baba Black Sheep that was on TV for the longest time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was a great show. And yeah. so we used to watch that. And it was always funny because we could pick out, you know, we lived in Southern California. So we could pick out all the Southern California hills. And then once in a while, you'd see the uh, Corsair flying by. And in the background was a giant contrail from some airliner that was, you know, there when they were filming, but not <laughs> in the 1940s. Yes. But anyway, yeah. To your question, James, I would say the F4U Corsair. I just, I know more about it. I know the Hellcat is also. So iconic for its own reasons. I just don't know as much about the Hellcat as I do the Corsair. And I'm sure some people are hearing the record screech when I say that. Right. And, uh, as a Navy guy, I probably should, but I just don't. And there's just not enough time in the day now, especially with this podcast. But I could always get smart on it later, maybe. But right now, I'm just, I'm not that aware. I love both airplanes. Supposedly, I've never flown either one of them, but they both have a lot of power. You know, I think yeah. they'll both be fun to fly. But the F4U Corsair is my girlfriend's favorite warbird. So <laughs> you have to go with that. I for that have reason. to say the F4U Corsair. Uh, very good. There. It's out there. So you guys have a museum up where you live. Is there one of those in the museum? Oh, yeah. Uh, we have the Flying Heritage Museum in uh, Everett. And then uh, we have the Museum of Flight, which is uh, right on Boeing Field. In Seattle. Oh, cool. There's a Corsair at the Museum of Flight, and there's a fully functioning flying Corsair at the uh, Flying Heritage Museum. Oh, wow. That would be amazing. Yeah, it's really cool to see those things still flying. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of them flying. I don't know the exact number, but there's still a lot of Corsairs flying. There's still Hellcats flying, too. Cool. All right. Next question is Lance from Townsville, Australia. And he asks, do you think strategically... The U.S. Navy is weaker due to its insistence on using the Hornet platform for multiple roles. I understand from a fiscal point of view that it makes sense with less complications and efficient maintenance, but I feel it's left exposed somewhat after the retirement of the Tomcat. I know the Soviet threat has waned, but there is still a need for a fleet defense platform, which no variation of the Hornet can fulfill. This is also a great question and topic. Yeah. Well, I would refute 
Lance's last point. I think the AESA-equipped Super Hornet, especially with the more capable AMRAM coming out, is capable of fleet defense. Uh, the question is, is it capable like the F-14 was? No, uh, it does not have the range of the Phoenix. But that threat, I would argue, doesn't exist, at least in the numbers that it did for the Soviet era in the Cold War. So uh, it's a good question, Lance. I think that I have some faith in naval planners that based on a sufficient enough or significant enough threat that we will field the proper weapons to deal with them. And so the fact that we don't have anything suggests to me that that's not as big a threat these days as it was during the Cold War. But to your point, I mean, yes, it's a trade-off, as we've always said on this show. Everything's a trade-off. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have mostly F-18 platforms, whether it's the Hornet, Super Hornet, or Growler, is a cost savings. It's logistically simpler. It's easier for training. But do we give something up? Sure. But if we had different aircraft, like we will soon with the F-35, well, then we will also have all the different costs and challenges that go with that. And even something as simple as multiple parts and aircraft engines that need to be carried by the aircraft carrier when we deploy. It is a trade-off. And I feel like the advanced, especially with the Block 3 coming with the uh, Super Hornets, I feel like we have the capability to properly defend as part of the overall weapon system. And by that, I mean other ships, other systems that can defend the carrier strike group. Uh, but that being said, there was a recent article in The uh, Economist, I believe it was, that talked about how as Chinese and Russian threats continue to advance, carrier strike groups may need to stand further and further away from their shores. And there's, that's true. And that just goes back to the constant you know, arms race. Every time there's a new advancement, there's a new counter. And that's always going to be true. And so, yes, it's a trade-off. Are we weaker? Uh, I'm not prepared to say we are. Mm. I think it's a trade-off that we assume and we accept that we might be slightly better or worse at certain things, but it's a trade-off we're willing to make. You mentioned the Block 3 Hornet. That's the one, that's the new variant that's going to have the conformal fuel tanks on it, correct? Yes, correct. Uh, Block 3 Super Hornet, just to be Super Hornet, clear. sorry about that. Yeah, the conformal fuel tanks, hotter engines. I think they're going to have an IRST built into a yep. centerline fuel tank yep. and bigger displays. I need to get smart on it, but yeah, it's going to have a lot more capability, kind of blur the line, I guess, between block four, or I should say uh, fourth and fifth gen, yep. like a fourth and a half kind of gen. Yeah, kind of fourth mm-hmm. plus or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I've read a little, I mean, I've read a little bit about that. Sounds like it could be a pretty cool airplane. <laughs> I mean, yeah, from, from yeah. what I've read. All right. Well, thanks everyone, as always, for the thought-provoking questions. But why don't we move on to our feature segment and a quick disclaimer. So you had a chance to listen to Sandy, and I know you heard some of the background sounds that we'll cut out in the final product, but we mm-hmm. recorded this at Captain Jellison's home. And so there's a little non-standard noises that maybe you're not used to when we record in the studio. But other than that, what did you think of the interview before we get to it? Well, I thought... It's really great hearing former pilots talk about the Vigilante because it's such a fascinating airplane to me. It's one of the more unique airplanes that's Mm -hmm. ever flown off of a carrier, I think. So it's just really great hearing like the From someone who flew it, no doubt. Mm -hmm. For someone who actually flew it. All right, well, let's get to it with retired U.S. Navy Captain Bob Jellison. 
Today we are discussing the A5 Vigilante in its different flavors. And here to help me do that is retired United States Navy Captain Bob Jellison. Bob, how are you today, sir? I'm great. How about you? Good, thanks. Well, thank you for having me here in your home in beautiful San Diego. And that's the Pacific Ocean right outside the window. That's pretty nice. It's a nice place to live, I must say. For sure. Okay. And you said you've been here for a number of years. 40 years. In this home? Yeah, actually, since I retired. Good. Well, let's get to know you a little bit better, Bob. Can you tell the listener where you're from, where your alma mater was, and what you did in the Navy? Well, let's see. I grew up in San Diego, Okay. uh, starting in the third grade. Uh, My dad was a pilot during World War II, and he was a service test pilot for what was in Consolidated Faulty Aircraft. Oh. And he flew B-24s and PBYs. So then, after I graduated from high school, I went on to San Diego State College, And that was during the Korean War, and I was a junior, and my friends were getting drafted. So that seemed like a good time to think about doing something else. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in aviation, Mm -hmm. and I could join the Navy NAVCAT program at that time. Yes, we have discussed that before. Yeah, so I did that, yeah, and uh, went through flight training. And then I was assigned to an F-9-6 Cougar Squadron, which was the first Navy transonic jet. My second tour was in the F-3H Demon, which was, I must say, sort of a crummy airplane. It was the first Navy's first all-weather fighter. Okay. And it was a way underpowered. In fact, the engine that they originally bought for the aircraft, it wouldn't even take off with that engine, or it would barely take off. And so, so <laughs> That does sound underpowered. So the ones that hadn't crashed already, they shipped down to NAS Memphis on a barge and to use it for technical training. Then they installed the only engine that was available, which was the Ellison J-71 from the Air Force B-66 bomber. And that was a problem, too, to tell you the truth. <laughs> when the airplane would fly into a moisture, the engine would quit. Oh, and the early ones, yeah, that was bad. And it had a bad ejection seat, so that was a problem. So, <laughs> so, so A widowmaker. Okay. It was, yeah, so you know, right. they worked around that and put a Martin Baker seat in it, so it was a better airplane. But anyway, that was an interesting tour. And so before I got out of the Navy, before I stopped flying, I was very happy to fly Vigilantes because okay. that was a beautiful airplane. Although I must say, when I was assigned to Vigilante Squadron, I really had never had seen one. I didn't even know what they were all about. And so I was pleasantly surprised when I got to NAS Sanford to find out it was really a beautiful airplane, great performance, wonderful engines. The same engines that were in uh, are in the F-4 Phantom. F-4 Phantom, that's right. And the Air Force... Um, B-58 Hustler Bomber, yeah. All right. Well, great. Let's talk about the A-5 because this was, and I don't know if we should call it the A-5 or the RA-5. I mean, ultimately... Well, it started off as an A-5A. Well, it actually, right before the Navy merged with the Air Force's nomenclature system, it began as the A-3J, I want to say. Yeah, it was. Yeah, right. right. And then, what, in the 50s or 60s is when everything went to the system, what we know of today. Yes, So you have the F-4 and the A-4, and okay. So, But I'll just call it the A-5A. Sure. It's easier than trying to remember all these designations, for sure. (laughs) Okay. Well, and this aircraft might be well-suited to starting with the variants and talk through maybe chronologically where they were. Because in the mid-50s, as I understand, North Americans said, hey, the Navy's going to need a strategic bomber from a carrier, which seems kind yes, of crazy today. Exactly. We haven't had one since, but we had the A3 whale, I think, prior to that. Yeah, yeah. And so they came up with what we will call, what, the A5A? Yeah, yeah A5A okay. proposal, yes. All right. And what can you tell us about that aircraft? Okay, Bob? well, it was a 
seems like a pretty amazing aircraft. It would fly up to Mach 2.5 at 50,000 wow. feet. And it set an altitude record, sort of zoom to climb to altitude record, of 91,450 feet, <laughs> which was pretty amazing. And, of course, once the aircraft got up to 91,000 feet, the air was too thin, so there was no control. And the engine is both flamed out because there was not enough air to run the engines. <laughs> so the airplane that sort of fell down on its back to denser air and just recovered by itself. And they were able to land it safely? Yeah, we landed oh, it safely. I, I did read that on that particular flight, they went to their maximum forward speed and then basically went up as if a ballistic projectile. Like yes, yeah, they started off forward. at 40,000 feet at Mach 2.1. Okay. And then they just went on straight, parabolic. Straight up, yeah, and that parabolic arc. And yeah. uh, anyway, at the end of the parabola, they ended up on their back. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the airplane <laughs> fell down on its back. Okay. And it, it was carrying, I think, a thousand load. Yeah, a thousand um, kilogram. Kilogram, okay, load. 2,500 pounds. And so it set a record. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a nuclear, supersonic nuclear strike bomber to carry a nuclear weapon, obviously. Right. And I, one of the unusual features about it was the Bombay. And it was a tube located between the two engines. And the weapon went in first, followed by two fuel tanks. <laughs> the problem was that they had was uh, releasing the weapon. And if they're doing like a loft maneuver, mm -hmm. that would tend to get hung up. And if they're flying straight and level, it would also get hung up. So whatever <laughs> they did, it got hung up in the, in the Bombay. So that was, that was not good. So, Bob, when I think of the word Bombay, I think of a couple doors that swing open underneath, like on a B-52. Is that how it was on the no, A-5? No, no, it just had a tail cone on the back of this tube. So it was loaded up the rear end of the airplane. It loaded up through the rear end of the airplane <laughs> with the fuel tanks. And the okay. fuel tanks and the bomb all went together. As they Obviously, the fuel tanks were in the last, so right. they had to go first. And, of course, like I said, it uh, was high speed, high altitude. Mm -hmm. The downside was that as the Russians developed better air defenses, flying in at any altitude was not a good idea. So the Defense Department decided to switch to ballistic missiles instead of the aircraft. And so mm -hmm. they canceled the... Air Force's B-58 and the A-5A. Right. But then the Navy had these aircraft. See, before they canceled it, mm -hmm. uh, the Navy started on an A-5B. Okay. Which essentially added fuel tanks behind the, the cockpit. And so it, and it had a slightly different wing. Is that what gives it that distinctive hump? Yeah, hump, yeah so it had that RA-5C hump. Right. So obviously it had all these very expensive aircraft that were not very useful. The Navy at the same time decided that they did have the requirement for a reconnaissance platform that was better than the RF-8. Mm. And so essentially it was pretty easy to modify the airplane in that they added a canoe to the bottom of the aircraft that carried an array of cameras and side-looking radars and IR sensors. And then they had a PECM, Passive Electronic Countermeasures System, that fit oh. in the aircraft where the nuclear weapon would have fit. So it was in the front of the Bombay and it could detect emitters, locate them, provide the latitude and longitude, and record all that on tape. The downside was it was heavy. And so lots of times we seem to use it at night. And at night with that PECM system included, the aircraft was just about at max landing weight when you landed with minimum fuel, emergency fuel. So you sort of had one pass wow. to make it on board or you cheated a little bit and had a enough fuel to make it around again but uh, all the pilots in the squadrons were lieutenant commanders or commanders so they're all second tour pilots which made it a little better because people didn't boulder 
ever. <laughs> These were experienced pilots flying because this was a difficult airplane to land on the carrier. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so there weren't a lot of ensigns, first term ensigns out there flying these airplanes. So okay. That, that made it a little easier. And so the A5A and B turned into effectively what we know as the a- RA5C. Yeah. And that was the, I would argue, definitive model for the vigilante. Yes. And so they made a lot of those. They made 95 RA5Cs and then they converted the A5As that they had and A5Bs, the RA5C specification, okay. after, they, after they finished the production of the RA5C. Okay. So what began life as a strategic nuclear bomber found a career, if you will, in re- reconnaissance. Yes. And, okay. and it was a very capable reconnaissance platform, I must say. So okay. Added. All right. Great. So in its previous role, we talked about some of the avionics it had but in its previous role what was the weapons it would carry or armament did it have obviously it wasn't designed for air to air so i'm guessing no missiles or gun a nuclear weapon is all it had okay exactly and that was carried internally as we discussed was there also a couple hard points on the wings well they added hard points on the a5b Mm -hmm. and so it could carry weapons on the wings in fact we practiced bombing at a bombing range with weapons carried on the, really? the RA-5C, which was sort of a useless exercise, but that's what we did anyway. <laughs> okay, so that wasn't a mission it was ever going to pursue. Oh, all right. Although the RA-5C still didn't have a strategic mission, we had uh, targets right. associated, with, associated with nuclear war. Okay, so we've alluded to the fact that it was difficult to fly on the ship, but it was also very fast. And I'm guessing those go hand in hand because generally an aircraft that does well at high speed sometimes have difficulty slowing down. So for performance of this aircraft, what was the fastest you ever saw flying it, Bob? Mach 2 at 50,000 feet. Was there any part of it that was low altitude? Probably for your... Well, when we flew missions over Vietnam, we flew Mm -hmm. missions at 6,000 feet. Okay. We'd fly in minimum afterburner to eliminate the smoke trail, and that would put the plane just right at Mach 1. And our F-4 escorts were carrying drop tanks Mm because they didn't have as much fuel as we did. And so sometimes they said it was sort of exciting because trying to keep up with us was not possible, but they'd fly as fast as they can. And that's... (laughs) Anyway. Okay. So it had no trouble going fast. No trouble What was it like when you brought it back to the ship trying to go slow? Well, I'll tell you what it had. It had an amazing auto throttle. Okay. Not too familiar with newer auto throttles. But in this case, uh, it had sensors, gyroscopes in the tail section of the aircraft. Hmm. And, of course, it had an airspeed sensor. And so it maintained its airspeed. And if you wanted to climb a little bit, you just pulled back on the stick, and the airspeed would continue the same. And you could hear the engines spool up. And if you were a little high on glide path, you push the stick forward a little bit, and then the engines would spool down. So essentially, you flew the airplane without the throttle, using the stick as a throttle. So and I must say that made it doable at night. Yeah. Yeah, so we appreciated this. Was it pretty cocked up on landing, too, a pretty high angle of attack? Probably not, no. Not, not too bad? Really, no. Okay. I think the initial A5As did not have blown flaps. Right. And so they did have problems landing, the A5A. Okay. It was, yeah, that was sort of hairy. Describe again real quickly, if you could, blown flaps as far as, it's a high lift device, right? Yeah, blown flaps, they direct high pressure air over the flap mm-hmm. to keep the air from separating from the flap. So right. it, it makes the wing much more efficient. It's kind of crazy because it's air that's already internal to the aircraft. It's coming off the engines and we're introducing it out into the airstream yeah. for aerodynamic reasons. And it makes a big difference on the Yeah, it makes, makes a difference, yes. As, as I recall, F8F's or F-8 Crusaders, mm-hmm. 
the newer models had that same addition and made it a lot easier to, right. to land. Yeah. We did have an episode on that with a guest who talked about the blown flaps. So just in case anyone listens to these out of order. Okay. And so do you recall what your approach speed was coming aboard? The it ship? was around 150 knots or so. Wow. 155. Okay. Which is about 170 miles per hour. Yeah, it was fast. Okay. Uh, but like I said, it was doable because <laughs> for me anyway, the auto throttle made the difference. Right. Tell you what, other thing about the vigilante that was really unusual was a control system for roll. And so instead of ailerons, mm-hmm. uh, it had what they called spoiler deflectors. And so it was a slot in the wing and hinged at the front of the slot was a spoiler and also the speed reasons, speed brake. Right. The bottom of the wing, a deflector came down in that same slot, which was hinged at the, hinged at the back. Hmm. One thing people have commented about that I really never was concerned about was that when the aircraft rolled, it didn't roll around an axis that went through the body. It rolled around the opposite wing. So if you're rolling right, that center uh. roll was somewhere on the opposite wing. So the fuselage would go down. Instead of, whereas ailerons, obviously, it tends to balance. And the one wing goes up and the other goes down. Well, in this case, the one wing would just go down. That is an interesting distinction. So in other words, if you had a model of the A5 in your hands and you put your one finger on the nose and another finger on the tail cone, a normal airplane would be like someone spinning that in your hand. It would spin around that axis. But what you're saying is imagine grabbing the wing between your thumb and finger and now it's rotating about that pivot point. Yeah, or somewhere in the middle of the wing. Right, not quite that extreme. Okay. And was that problematic during, say, carrier landings, or just you had to get used to it? Making a carrier landing, you're not rolling very much anyway. Sure, but small corrections or anything? Yeah, they wouldn't didn't, didn't make a difference okay. there. But just flying the airplane, it was different than other airplanes. Yeah, it was different than other wow. airplanes in that regard, yeah. Wow, that is amazing. But it was a really nice handling airplane. It was uh, the first production airplane with fly-by-wire. And it also, uh, interestingly, used a great deal of titanium and really high-strength aluminum. In fact, the wing, upper section of the wing, was milled out of a single piece of this high-strength aluminum. And it had titanium leading edges in the oh. airplane. In fact, as I recall, when we were in, uh, going through training, uh, somebody ran into a fuel truck, and it sort of just cut the cabin off the fuel truck and really didn't hurt the vigilante wing at all. So I thought that was pretty amazing. Anyway, yeah. Built pretty tough, huh? Yeah, it was far hard. Oh, wow. hard. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And as far as the landing on the carrier goes, a pretty large aircraft, right? So not a lot of room left and right. Plus, you're going very fast. And back then, was this operated on all carriers or just certain ones? Oh, uh, just on the big decks, which okay. was nice. And I guess previously I'd flown off SS-class carriers, so mm-hmm. it was really a treat flying off the Kitty Hawk. So that was estimated. <laughs> Relatively long runway, huh? I guess the other, the downside for the Vigilante, as far as the ship was concerned, was that it took up a lot of deck space. Right. And took a whole array of parts that were unique to the Vigilante and um, had a lot of mechanics. So we had pretty, we had squadron size. Uh, personnel was about the same as a 12 plane F4 squadron. And we just had, uh, started off with six Vigilantes, then it dropped down to five. And then. Okay. Because it had a specialized mission. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so oftentimes when we were out in, in, on the line in Vietnam, we'd fly one plane ashore at QB Point and keep it there for 10 days or so. And it worked out pretty good for the, the pilots. You could, oh, I'm sure. You get it, yeah. And, Would they do missions from ashore? No, or? no. Just, just stay there and okay. relax and get yeah, suntan. Yeah. 
If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Now, going back to the flight controls, what was interesting about the tail that I read is that it didn't have traditional elevators and rudders. Is that right? Yeah, that is one piece vertical stabilizer and one piece horizontal stabilizers. And I guess the one thing that was sort of interesting was that when your flaps were up, uh, the vertical stabilizer had very little throw, like it would go like three degrees. Mm. And so I remember one pilot, I was taking off at uh, Sanford, Florida, and he didn't appreciate the fact that his flaps were up. And so the airplane started running off the side of the runway <laughs> and he put his hook down and then he and the RAN, the guy in the back, ejected. Mm. And they came down about right near the airplane. And oh, gosh. the airplane was still an afterburner oh. uh, hooked onto the cable, arresting wire. So the airplane was okay. That was missing two seats and two canopies. <laughs> but, All right. So it was a handful to get onto the carrier. How about getting off? Was I mean, obviously, catapult shots are fairly easy, but was it pretty violent? It had a really long nose, and the nose was flexible. You learn after the first cat shot to fasten your seatbelt really set strongly. So make sure you're strapped in well because it would bounce your head right off the canopy. It bounce you up and down, yeah. So <laughs> bouncing your helmet off the canopy is, wow. not, is not a good thing to do. Oh, gosh. I would think not. And then how many missions did you end up performing uh, in Vietnam? Well, I feel about 100 missions. 100 missions. For North Vietnam. Now, was that pretty rare? Because I read that this had a fairly high rate of... Loss rate. Loss, because you would sometimes show up over the target first and then again last. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, they lost, Vigilante had um, more losses per mission than any other aircraft. So they lost, I think, about 18 wow. aircraft uh, to AAA, SAMs, mm-hmm. and other things. I, I think as the war went on, uh, they made improvements to Vigilante, better electronic countermeasures to start with. And uh, we learned a lot about what altitude to fly at. I think early on they flew at real low altitude and they suffered uh, losses due to just ground fire, mm-hmm. small weapons. And then later, the Navy came out with a Shrike missile, which would home in on radars. And so they had aircraft that were specially designated, called Iron Hand aircraft mm-hmm. missiles, and they would orbit near where you were flying. And if a radar came up, they'd fire the Shrike missile and then... If they shut the radar down, the missile was still home in on where the radar was. And so it obviously catches the attention of people operating these radars. <laughs> I turn on my radar, maybe something bad is going to happen. So, right. And it did lots of times. Wow. And in fact, these strike missiles, I know at one time that homed in on a Marine radar station uh, in South Vietnam, that was oops. And yeah. another time it homed in on a destroyer. 
and interestingly exploded over the over the destroyer and totally wiped out the destroyer's capability to do anything. Wow. All the destroyer had a lot of cables running on top of the deck and it severed those cables and so it couldn't communicate. <laughs> the radar didn't work. So all I could do is steer and go home, I guess. So an inadvertent not optimal mission test to prove how good this. Oh, yeah, that was a good. Was it was there. a good missile. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. You talked about the fly-by wire. Did it also have a heads-up display? It had maybe the first heads-up display oh, too. Okay. Was that useful for the carrier? But I'll tell you what it had, which was, I thought sort of interesting. It had a one-piece acrylic windscreen, oh. and so it just curved. Instead of you know, like most airplanes, they've got braces in the windscreen, and the front's flat and around. Mm. It said this was just one piece mm. acrylic, and air would blow over uh, when your flaps are down, would blow over the windscreen that would get rid of moisture on the windscreen. Oh, okay. Like bleed air was used? Bleed air. To, oh, okay. Got, yeah, eliminating problems with right. uh, rain. So it made, it made it nice. How was cockpit visibility for the pilot? We'll talk about the backseater in a moment. Well, it was fine for the pilot. It's a okay. nice airplane, big cockpit. And it sure. was really nice. Plus you weren't dogfighting, so no, well, it wasn't... Occasionally, I dogfight with an F4 or something. Oh, yeah? You guys would go swirl around? Yeah, well, at low altitude, you could do okay, but at high <laughs> altitude, forget How it. How many Gs could it pull? Uh, that was a problem, sort of like three and a half or four oh, okay. Gs, depending on your fuel weight. So, All right. Yeah. But could it go up in the vertical? And No, 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 no. If I wanted to go vertical, forget it. He was yeah. on his right. right. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a fair fight, but hey, you guys like to mix it up. In fact, I guess one time I remember losing my radio and so i passed the lead to the f4 and we were going to coast out over laos then fly down south and go out to sea over south vietnam so we're flying along the clouds and i was flying wing on him and i couldn't hear what he was saying to the ground control but apparently i told him to climb so he lit his afterburner well as you can imagine that was the last i saw of him vigilante wasn't going to climb with his f4 and afterburner at high altitude Huh. We could go fast, but yeah. climbing wasn't our strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> now, did your A5 have, it had the same engines, did it have afterburner? Yeah, it had afterburners, okay. yeah. Yeah, you said that earlier. It, it a lot of, lot of power, so it was a great okay. airplane, yeah. How much fuel did it carry? You know, I'm not sure exactly how much okay. fuel it carried. Plenty, though. For uh, Were your missions fairly long, or were they? Yeah, we, we did, really didn't need to tank on most missions, so oh. that was nice. Where but it, it had the capability? Uh, yeah, we could tank, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like... A lot of airplanes, uh, tanking was not amazingly easy. The probe was in front of the airplane, so you could see it. Mm -hmm. Turns out it still wasn't easy. You appreciate that, I know. Yes, I can imagine. Well, in good weather, when you're proficient, it's mildly fun. It's like a challenge. But uh, yes, when you need it or it's nighttime, turbulent weather, then that's it. Well, that's right. It's sort of like landing at night. And vigilante, where, like I mentioned, you could only add one pass to make. And the idea of Climbing up and rendezvousing with an A3D tanker mm-hmm. over the ship at night seemed like it was just unimaginable. So the answer was get aboard in that first pass because wow. you don't want to go around. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay. All right. And then tell me about the backseater. I believe it's called a bombardier navigator, like an A6 in the A5, A, and B. Yeah, it was. That's right. they changed the name in the RA5C. Yeah, yeah, Reconnaissance Attack Navigator. Reconnaissance Attack Navigator. And what was that person's duties? Well, he had to run the cameras. And there were a number of cameras to run. And mm-hmm. he, he had a optical scope that he could look out through the bottom of the aircraft. It had a, a, dope, a small dome on the bottom of the aircraft, near the uh, front of the aircraft. So he could see through there. 
the problem we had, or I would have had anyway, is it had almost no windows in the back. It had just two little teeny windows up above his shoulder <laughs> level, so he yeah. couldn't see out. And so the downside of that, I, I know in one case, uh, Vigilante was making an approach at night, actually the CEO of the squadron, and the LSO was saying, power, power, power. And so the guy in the back, he decided he had it with that, so he, he ejected. Wow. The plane landed safely, but he landed somewhere in the ocean, and the plane, the plane was short, one canopy and one ejection seat. <laughs> so he only went himself? He didn't take the pilot with him? No, he couldn't do that. The pilot could take both people, but the guy in the back could only take both. Oh, no kidding. Okay. So he was running the equipment. Was the pilot involved with that as well, or was it pilot mostly following the prescribed route? Yeah, prescribed route was okay. really what it's all about. Yeah. And altitude and speeds. Okay. In retrospect, I wish I'd ridden in the back of a RA-5C because I would have had greater appreciation for what it was like back there. And, of course, and we, like I said, we had side-looking radar. I must say it had a really good ejection seat, and it had arm and leg restraints, but still if you ejected 600 knots, which some people did, Oof. it was not helpful. Yeah. No, I would yeah, think yeah, that. Yeah. Flail injuries and yeah, yeah. low survivability rate. But on the other hand, if it's either that or sure death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you ever have to try the seat out? No, but I, one of the pilots in another squadron uh, ejected off the coast going fast, and he broke both of his arms, and uh, he landed in the water fairly close to the coast. He couldn't do anything with his arms, so he got caught up in the shrouds of the parachute, and so they came in with a helicopter to get pick him up. And meanwhile, people were shooting at this helicopter from the shore, and they dropped the crewman into the water, and he really couldn't help. So then the helicopter took off, but there was an Air Force seaplane nearby, and the seaplane came in and apparently snatched him up very quickly, got him into the airplane, and got rid wow. of him. Anyway, they seemed to really know what they were doing and took oh, off, right. yeah. That's crazy. Well, that's good to see even back then the Air Force and the Navy, despite some fun rivalry, can still help each other out when the chips are down. Yeah, that's Okay. Right. Yeah. So, Bob, where would the listener who doesn't already know about the A-5 Vigilante have seen it? Maybe either in the news, was there anything like maybe in Cuba or in any movies where it was featured? I mean, how, how do people know about the A-5, specifically the RA-5? Well, I must say there's one down in San Diego on the Midway uh, Carrier. Oh, so there's one on display there. One okay. on display there, mm-hmm. and there are some other, others on display sure, in elsewhere in the country yeah, right. and, and aircraft museums. But, okay. But that's about it. You know, we're talking about an airplane that was, this was 50 years ago, so sure. it was probably in the news back 50 years and ago. And it didn't have a particularly long life, right? I mean, it was designed, what, in the mid-50s? Yeah, 59, I think. First but, flew in early 60s, but then retired already in the 70s. Yes, I did. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And not very many built, I want to say just a few hundred? What did I say? Yeah, yeah, almost 200 by the okay. time they've modified all the A5As right. and A5Bs. So right. is, and then we had, during my first cruise, uh, they went into production and built 39 additional A5s, RA5Cs. Okay. And so we got those in the squadron for the second cruise. So that was really nice. We had brand oh, new airplanes. So in other words, they were built to be RA5Cs. They weren't converted B A's and Bs. Okay. And so they were nice. And they had... Uh, a modified wing, sort of an extension as a wing root, uh, which apparently was designed to cause better airflow over the stabilizers when oh. you're coming in for a landing. So that was okay. nice, too. So they had incorporated lessons learned from earlier models. Okay, well, that's fairly common. All right. Uh, let's see. I have some listener questions I'd like to pose to you. I didn't tell you I was going to do this, Bob, but they should be fairly easy. Uh, one from David Fine. He said he wants to know about flying this beautiful aircraft uh, over the 
aboard the ship, which we've already talked about. But then he goes on to say, I heard the crew sat way out over the water. I assume he means in front of the wheel, but when they taxi you on the flight deck, sometimes you end up over the water. Uh, I wonder what that was like. So did you have any... Yeah, it got your attention the first time you did it when Mm -hmm. you were looking way back at the flight uh, director. Right. As taxing you forward, and because like I said, like you probably noticed that uh, you're looking straight down to the water if you look down. So that was, I guess, interesting. Sure. And then Steve Garcia also asks about landing aboard the ship, but he says, were there any special tactics a Vigi driver might employ to compensate for aircraft characteristics? So when you landed, I presume other aircraft aboard the ship. Was there anything special you had to do in the vigilante? <laughs> uh, no, it's a nice airplane. It. Uh, Great control system, yeah. fly-by-wire system, flew. Anyway, there was no problems at all. And, of course, like I said, flying off the Kitty Hawk was great after flying off Essex-class carriers at night. Right. Uh, it was a real pleasure to be. Just because it was such a larger, relatively ship. Okay. Yep. All right. Now, I don't know if you were prepared to answer this one, but uh, Lyman Howard says, uh, were there any groundbreaking features that were carried on from this supersonic strategic jet onto other fleet aircraft. Do you know of any? Because this was built by North American. Yeah. And they built, I think, as well, the T-2 Buckeye and a few other aircraft. But do you know of anything that carried on for other aircraft? Obviously, they didn't keep, for example, the entire moving surfaces of the vertical stabilizer, but the F-18 does have the horizontal stabilators, as they're called. Okay, yeah, no, I'm not sure. Obviously, fly-by-wire, heads-up mm-hmm. display. right. Windscreens obviously didn't carry on to other aircraft. Blown flaps. Not sure if Vigilante was first to have blown flaps, but we did have blown flaps. Okay. Scott Morris wants to know, other than the reconnaissance systems, which we talked about, what were the other duties of the NFO? So obviously during the strategic portion or the tactical portion maybe of the mission, that was his primary responsibility. But other times, I assume there were crew duties you would share. Whether I mean, did he help, for example, in carrier landings as far as providing you any information? Or what other duties would the RAN have? No, he's, for the most part, pretty quiet. I, okay. I'll tell you one experience I had. Uh, sure. Which was some interest, at least to me. I was doing night carrier calls in the Enterprise, and I was the only airplane in the pattern, and it was 4.30 in the morning. Wow. Which, <laughs> and it was a dark night. Every time you landed, you had to be refueled. And when you were refueled, that fuel went into the bomb bay tanks. And then when you flew upwind, uh, you transferred the fuel from the bomb bay tanks to the wing tanks so you could get the center of gravity right for landing. And so, anyway, like I said, it was 4.30 in the morning, flying upwind. And obviously we had a nice big gyro horizon, which is really pretty much all you needed to depend on for the most part. RAN said, hey, you might check your attitude. And so, so I... Looked over my shoulder and I could, I was essentially turning downwind and I could see the carrier. Huh. And uh, the gyro rising had somehow failed or come unplugged or something during the cat shot. Oh, gosh. And so it was staying nice and level and the airplane was rolling. Well, it turns out there was also a little small other backup gyro rising there, which I should have been looking at, uh-huh. but I wasn't. But anyway. Well, we tend to get a little, uh, it's called the circadian low. That's yeah, right. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. All right. John Scobie says, uh, what aircraft did it replace in the fleet? I think we talked about that. Uh, at least it complemented, right, the A3. Well, probably the RF-8, photo F-8, was the plane that it really complemented to some okay. level. And then, I'm not sure about these, but what were equivalent aircraft in Soviet 
or Chinese or even friendly countries. Was there anything like this anywhere else in the world? <laughs> no, I guess the one aircraft that was similar was a B-58 Hustler. Right. That was another aircraft that had essentially the same performance characteristics. Only flown by the Air Force. Well, Air Force, yeah. Okay. And they had a lot of accidents and they sort of disappeared pretty quickly. All right. And then John Clark wants to know, and I think we've talked about some of these, what quirks or features or bad habits, in his word, uh, are included in the A-5 that um, differed from more prolific other aircraft? Was there anything that was, again, specific on this that uh, you didn't have to deal with or that you did have to deal with that you didn't on others? No, it was a really nice airplane. I, I loved flying it. Good-sized cockpit, mm -hmm. flew fast, a lot of power. Uh, it was just a nice airplane. I, yeah. I liked it, yeah. Okay. Now, Bob, when you think back on your career flying the various aircraft, and today we're focusing on the A-5, is there one mission or one experience that stands out in your mind that was either harrowing or really defined your time in the A-5 specifically? I could talk about the F-3H Demon. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> we may have to come back for that one. But, but the A-5... Uh, no, the missions were all pretty straightforward. As right. you mentioned, uh, doing bomb damage assessment wasn't mm -hmm. the favorite mission because uh, the bombers would come in and they sort of knew the RA-5C was going to be coming over. Right. On the cruise, uh, we lost one aircraft to AAA in my squadron. And another aircraft, I was flying over a little island in the Gulf called Tiger Island okay. at low altitude. And it shot some holes in his wing. Well, I guess the interesting part was he was taking pictures as he went across the island. And so it recorded on the film how high he was and how fast he was going. So he was like, I don't know, 100 feet going 600 and some knots. And wow. So, so anyway, it, uh, it came back to haunt him when he said, hey, wait a second, what are you doing down at 100 feet flying over this island? You didn't even fly over it, just screwing around. So, <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. And they were shooting at him anyway. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, how many hours did you end up with in... The A-5, do you recall? 2,000 hours. 2,000, okay. Was that your high-time aircraft? Probably not, no. no? But yeah, flew a lot of hours in a T-33. Okay. Yeah, training, in training aircraft. And it sounds to me, I'm getting the feeling that it did what it was told to do. You enjoyed flying it. It was an easy aircraft and and, and not a lot of drama. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, they had a good simulator, so before you start flying it, okay. it was a nice simulator to give you an idea what it was going to be like. Did they have a two-seat version, or the first time you jumped? Just a one-seat version. Okay, but, well, yeah. for pilot, I mean. Yeah, they might right. have had a... They're all two-seaters, but no... Might have had a version for the guy in the back, but I'm not sure Okay. they did or not. Sure. Yeah. And so the first time you flew it for real, you were effectively... They had a good idea what it was going to be all about. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Unlike some other aircraft, I... I remember going through uh, instrument training flying a TA-4, and I was in the back, and the first thing you did was make a instrument takeoff. Right. And found myself looking around to see if I could figure out where the airspeed indicator was and the altitude <laughs> indicator was. So anyway, this was better than that. Yeah. Well, good. All right, Bob. Well, thanks for taking the time today. This has been a lot of fun learning about the A-5. I did not know very much about it. It preceded my time in the service, and... To your point, there are a couple on display, but otherwise it's a fairly not well-known aircraft. It just quietly did its duty and... And disappeared. Yeah. Almost, no. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. I must say just one last comment sure. about the A-5. Uh, you know about performance of more modern aircraft than I do, mm -hmm. but I wonder how many airplanes that are in operational service today can fly at Mach 2.5 at 50,000 feet. And the answer is 
Not very many, yeah. <laughs> especially not operating from an aircraft carrier. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, I suppose you could have a philosophical discussion on whether it's required, because if you have that capability, well, what are you giving up? And we've discussed that before on this show, but it was designed to go very fast and deliver a nuclear warhead, right? So that's exactly they, it, yeah. They wanted to give the pilots some chance of getting out of there. And when that mission went away, they still found use for it. So it still served admirably. So good. All right, Bob. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. There's one final question we always ask on the show, but I have to ask a preceding question because I just don't know. Do you have a call sign? Did you do that back in your time? No, that was before my time or <laughs> after my time. Yeah. After, after, yeah. Yeah. Everybody okay. call sign. So you just went by Bob. Well, this went by the side number in the aircraft probably. Oh, when you were flying. Okay. Or sometimes you had a different tactical call sign perhaps, but just the side number around the ship generally. Yeah. The squadron okay. had a tactical a call sign for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks a lot for your time today. I really enjoyed learning about the A5. <laughs> okay. You're great, Vincent. Thank you. All Appreciate right. the whole thing. All right, sweet. Big thanks again to retired U.S. Navy Captain Bob Jellison with no call sign for taking the time to help us better understand the North American A-5 Vigilante. Man, what a plane and what a mission, what it was designed to do and what it ended up doing. What did you think of that, Andy? Just incredible. Like, it's just such an incredible airplane. I mean, Mach 2 flying off of a carrier. Mach 2 Plus. (laughs) Mach 2 Plus. Yeah. I love it that he did touch upon the fact that a lot of the pilots that flew him were more experienced pilots. Right. I believe mainly because of the way that the plane handled around the boat. They landed heavy. And fast. And fast, higher approach Mm -hmm. speed. But it's really cool that the things that they designed into the airplane to help with that, the auto throttle, the blown flaps, which give it a Mm -hmm. little bit more lift, just a cool airplane. And then they had the J-79 engines in them, which is one of the most iconic fighter jet engines ever designed i mean no doubt i do think it's ironic and funny that a plane with this much high performance was bad at climbing (laughs) (laughs) well except for that one time when they did the uh test to see how high they could get and flopped over on their backs and uh, that was crazy story yeah oh i know what what was it like like ninety one thousand feet yeah something like that it was way up there and then of course they came quietly down for a few minutes before they got in a thicker air. That's, that's when men were men. And, uh, you know, that's, oh man, I can't imagine just being that high and, and the plane just stops flying on you. But to your point, I think in the original mission, they would have had time to get up high enough in the nuclear strike. And then as what it was used for, of course, lower was better anyway. And I mean, going over the target first, I'm okay with that. But then, you know, they stir up the hornet's nest and guess who's the last one to come through? (laughs) That's crazy. But they had to get the pictures. They did. And funny fact I read about that Mm -hmm. was, so the canoe, they called it the uh, sensor camera pod in the belly. Mm Mm-hmm. If you look at a photo of RA-5C, there's like this kind of bulge in the belly, and that's where all the sensors are and cameras. That pod, one of the cameras could actually take a photo of a tennis ball at 20,000 feet. Wow. So think about, what is it, 1950s, 1960s technology, Mm -hmm. and it could do that. But they're tasking the big Air Force and big Navy would task them to fly at low levels for like specific, like I think bomb damage assessment and stuff. Right. So they maybe really didn't need to do that, but for some reason they were tasked for that, Mm. which was interesting. And they took a lot of hits. They took a lot of losses. Oh yeah. Yeah. Bob mentioned that. Mm -hmm. But obviously, you know, you're going through first and they don't know you're coming and they're flying it. Yeah. He was saying min burner and Mach one. That's pretty impressive. Yep. 
Yeah. A lot of our listeners probably understand, but flying Mach 1 down low, not a lot of airplanes can do it. Not only that, but it can be very bouncy with uh, unsettled yeah. air in areas like Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Where you've got the mountains and valleys and different temperature air. So, yeah, that can be a little bit harrowing as well. But to your point, you know, our SR-71 guest, Brian Schull, said the same thing as far as mm-hmm. being able to read a name tag, in his case, way up at 80,000. Yep. Uh, and also that it wasn't like, member Stretch said, hey, a brand new pilot just fresh out of flight school is flying the F-22 Raptor. Mm-hmm. But for the Blackbird and the Vigilante, to your point, it was the more senior pilots. And I think part of that, to your point, was the uh, approach speeds getting on and off the carrier, which I don't know that anything has been quite as difficult as that before or since. Well, uh, funny story regarding that. One of my cousins, I think he was on the Nimitz like back in the 70s, 60s or 70s. And he was telling me whenever a vigilante landed on the deck, if you were below the deck, you definitely knew it was a vigilante because oh, they wow. would hit so hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him. He told me that when I was a kid. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, you obviously have a love for this aircraft because I remember an email from you. I think this is when we first <laughs> corresponded back in July of 2019. I think you said, Hey, love the show. Any chance of an A5 vigilante episode? And I had just come home from Bob's house yeah. that day. I said, Yeah, funny you should ask. It just got back. So, yeah. I think you like, you emailed me like with a lot of exclamation points. Like, <laughs> I just did the interview, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> I just got done doing that. That's right. Like, Great. Yeah. Here it is, though. <laughs> it took us a little while to get to it, but it's been on Patreon ever since uh, the unedited version. Did you say you had a relative who saw like the last one fly or something like that? Yeah. My uncle was an aviator in the Navy and he told me a long time ago. I just talked to him a couple of days ago. Cool. I was like, Remember that story you told me about the last A5 flying over you? And he was like, yeah. And I think they retired him in uh, 79. Okay. And he joined the Navy in 77, I believe. So, you know, he had been in for three years. But yeah, it flew over his head. That's cool. I don't know what base he was at. He definitely saw the last vigilante fly over his wow. head. So. It's not like you see still see these things at air shows. I mean, that's obviously not everyone's going to get a chance to say that. So, And I guess there are a couple on display in various places. I honestly cannot remember seeing one on the Midway. I'll have to go back, but he says there is. I definitely want to go check that out. Yeah. I haven't, haven't been to the Midway Museum, but it, I, it would just be awesome to go check that museum out. Oh, for sure. All right. Well, golly, uh, we can wrap this up unless you got anything else on the uh, Vigi there, Andy. I do. Yeah. So just kind of a, not really a side note, but just doing some research, the RAN, the backseaters. Yeah, that's right. In the Vigilante. I could talk for, I'm not going to, but I could talk for (laughs) probably three hours about the pod, the, the sensors, the cameras, and the job that those guys did in the backseat. I mean, that's, basically the reason the vigilante was there that's right there were some amazing stories of like a good vigilante pilot when they were flying over a target to take photos there was a light that would illuminate in the cockpit when the ran was actually taking the photos okay so a good pilot would be able to jink in between when the photos were taken (laughs) Uh, you mean like when he's being shot at yeah Wow. And so I read that in one of the books I got, but I was like, are you kidding me? You know, like (laughs) the really, really experienced pilots could do that. There's also a story of a vigilante. You can look, it's online. There's a photo that a vigilante took of an SA-2 missile in flight below it. Wow. Like it's a very detailed photo and it's like they had the booster stage and then a sustainment engine stage 
And it's so you can see it. It's like the sustainment stage of the SA2. It wasn't being fired at them, was it? Uh, I believe it was. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a total accident. But it was it's unbelievable. Wow. The stuff that they did. I could go on and on. There's some <laughs> crazy stories about, about the deck handling, the bridle system, mm-hmm. them going over the shuttle. And then one of the hardest things was getting the plane positioned on the shuttle because they had to push the wheel over the shuttle. And if it slid off to the side, they would have to do some work to get it back right. straight because of the old bridle system. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing the A4 had. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they weren't using the launch bar That's system right. like they do now. Yeah. Well, if that happens, then of course it slows down your launch, which can keep the guys trying to recover from coming down and can hurt their gas. So yeah, that's, that was, I can see where that would be a big deal. Yeah. So just a lot of crazy stories that I read about this airplane. It's safe to say you are a vigilante fan, huh? I am. Awesome. I am. Well, we will add that term RAN, which is like a bombardier navigator, to the glossary, as we will the few other terms, as we normally do. Otherwise, man, let's wrap this up. I want to thank our latest Patreon strike lead, Alexander Gillis, and newest air boss, James Kirikoff. As a reminder, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the host and my guests, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Andy, I guess we don't have to worry about who you're representing necessarily, right? And uh, <laughs> But thanks for helping out on the show today. That was a lot of fun, and I thought you represented the listeners well. And we're going to hear one of your songs here on the outro, aren't we? What, which one is it? Uh, this song is called Skeleton. It's from the uh, record engrams that my band reader just put out in August, and you can find it anywhere on Spotify or iTunes. Sweet. So enjoy it. And we'll leave a name of the band and the song in our notes. But Andy, thanks a lot. That was a lot of fun and uh, cool. Well, we'll catch you on Patreon real soon, Andy. And for everyone else, we'll see you back here in 10 days for the kickoff of Bomber Month. Until then, take it easy. See ya. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.